0: السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحبه ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كَثِيرًا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد majid اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد prospects listeners assalamu alaykum barakatuh <coughs> We continue with the second part of the tafsir the commentary of Surah Al-Hujarat. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, Bismillahir Rahmanir rahman rahim Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu laa taqaddimu bayna yadaillahi wa rasoolihi wa attaqu Allah. Inna Allah sami'un alim. O oh, believers, do not advance before the messenger before allah and his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and be wary of allah indeed allah is all hearing all knowing ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la tarfa'u aswatakum fawqa sawti an-nabi O believers, do not raise your voices over the voice of the Prophet ﷺ. وَلَا تَجْهَرُوا لَهُ بالقول كجهر بَعْضِكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ أَن أَعْمَالُكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا And do not speak loudly to him <coughs> in the manner of speaking loudly to one another. Lest your deeds perish and come to naught Whilst you don't even realise. This is where we stopped last week. We only more or less covered two verses. <coughs> and I was about to begin the third verse <speaking> in the Ladini Yudduna Aswata in But we we stopped. Now just to recap Surat al-Hujarat was mainly revealed in the ninth year of Hijrah, in the year of delegations. On this particular occasion, the delegation of Banu Tamim came to see the Prophet and they approached the masjid. There were approximately just over 70 of them and they came in a very large delegation. Very few of them were Muslim. According to some narrations, only two of them were Muslim at the time, but the remaining members of the delegation were not Muslim, As a resu- and plus they were Bedouin. As a result, when they came, they were unrefined unaware of the manner in which they should approach the Messenger They treated him, at that time at least, as merely a tribal leader. So in the manner of the Arabs and in their traditional custom, the delegation came and then began shouting at the Prophet to come out as they would do with other tribal leaders, and they invited him to what we call a mufafara, a musha'ara, which means a poetry, a duel of poetry, a deal of boasting. This is what the Arabs would do. So their whole approach wasn't out of the ordinary for the Arabs, for them that was pretty normal. That's how they treated one another. That's how they viewed tribal elders as well. Because the tribal chieftains, in fact, even amongst the clan, the individuals regarded their leaders and their chieftains as first amongst equals. They would rarely treat them like monarchs. There wasn't that concept of civility, civility and dutifulness before the leaders they actually regarded the leaders as equals but first amongst equals they would refrain from giving them titles they would call their tribal leaders by their first names or their kunya so and this is how they would treat one another when they met the tribal leaders would Gather in huge delegations, there'd be bouts of poetry, mutual boasting, competitions, each one would boast of their achievements, etc. So f- the way they approached the Prophet wasn't abnormal, that's exactly how they behaved with one another. But undoubtedly, this was unbefitting the position of. The Messenger. So this is the this is exactly what they did. And as far as the Prophet was concerned, it was afternoon time, he was resting. He was taking his siesta. They came, and according to some reports, they were they came inside the masjid. And from inside the masjid, Facing the Hujarat, the chambers of the Messenger Wasallam, they loudly shouted out to him, Ya Muhammad, ukhruj alayna, Muhammad, come out to us, we wish to deal with you in poetry, we wish to uh, have a bout of boasting competition. And they also said, allow us to appoint our poets so that they can sing our praises. And allow us to appoint one of our orators, so they can again extol our virtues, and you do the same. the Messenger وسلم, was resting. But again, in his haya, in his bashfulness and modesty, the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi came out and did not rebuke them on their disturbance. But he came out, he met them, he entertained them, he engaged in dialogue and discussion with them, and of course, there was some oratory. So they appointed one of their poets, and they also appointed one of their orators, and on behalf of the Messenger wasallam, Thabit ibn Qais ibn al one of the Ansar companions, he had a very loud, booming voice. So he spoke. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these verses of Surah Al-Hujarat on that occasion, rebuking Sayyidina Abu Bakr as siddiq and Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab for their raising their voices before the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, even though they weren't addressing him. And this is why in the first verse, there are both commandments. One, do not raise your voices. In the, sorry, in the second verse, there are both commandments. Do not raise your voices even when speaking to one another in the presence of the Messenger, sallallahu And the second commandment is, do not raise your voices when speaking to him directly, when addressing him. So whether one is speaking to him or not, in the presence of the noble messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, one has to adopt silence and respect. So Allah subhanahu wa taala warned Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhumah rebuked them, and at the same time, this is an instruction for the whole ummah. And then Allah comments on the behavior and the approach of these Bedouin. So, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says of these Bedouin, who called out to the Prophet Sallallahu Allah says, inna <laughs> wa and then So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about these Bedouin, but before he speaks about them, he contrasts their behaviour with the behaviour of believers whose hearts Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has tested for taqwa. So before we actually speak about the Bedouin, allow me to say something about this verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed, those who lower their voices in the Rasulullah by the Messenger of Allah. Ula'ika allatheena imtahana Allah qulubuhum lit-taqwa These are the ones whose hearts Allah has tested and purified for taqwa Lahum maghfiratun wa ajrun 'adheem For them is forgiveness and an immense reward Abu Bakr As-Siddiq radiyallahu and Umar ibn Al-Khattab radiyallahu an They both learned their lesson and they immediately realize their error. Now I'd like to answer a question here, which is that this was in the ninth year of Hijrah. Many, many years after the revelation of the Qur'an, many years after their remaining in the company of the Messenger wasallam. Many years after both became fathers in law to the Prophet. ﷺ. And in fact, this was very late into the life of the Prophet. ﷺ. After so many years, how was it that even the like of Umar ibn al Khattab and Abu Bakr as Siddiq radiallahu anhuma, argued with one another and in the presence of the Prophet وسلم, and they raised their voices. How did that happen? A couple of points I'd like to mention about that. First of all Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala made the Sahaba عنهم, an example Allah used them, Allah employed them to introduce His teachings for the rest of the Ummah. If the Sahaba عنهم, were left as angels, there wouldn't have been a lesson. And the same would go for the Messengers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in response to the demand of the Quraysh. The Quraysh wondered why Allah chose to send a human being as a messenger. Their constant objection was that why didn't Allah just send an angel? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's reply to that was, if we had made the messenger an angel, We would, st- we would still have sent the angel in the form of a human being. And then, these people, i.e., the Quraysh, they would have been just as confused about him as they are about the Prophet. <clears throat> if it was an angel, he would still have had to come in the form of a man. And if he came in the form of a man, how would they differentiate between him and uh, a normal human being as a messenger. So the Quraysh demanded repeatedly that why did Allah choose Muhammad the son of Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam as a messenger, why didn't Allah just send an angel? But this was Allah's wisdom. Allah azza sent a human being so that we could relate to him, we could identify with him. And in the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we have seen and witnessed many things. Did he have a perfect life, as we imagine it to be? Or as we assume? Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam suffered bereavement. He suffered wounds, injury. He suffered illness. He suffered the effect of the effects of poison. He suffered the pangs of hunger. Prophet went through marriage and even a divorce. He divorced Hafsa as the narration of Abu Dawood in his sunan states. Prophet actually divorced Umm al-Mu'mineen Hafsa but then he eventually took her back upon the guidance of Allah And at one stage he contemplated divorcing all of his wives. The Prophet ﷺ suffered bereavement. He suffered disappointments. The Messenger ﷺ was betrayed. He was abused. So his life, he suffered poverty. His life wasn't perfect as we would imagine it to be. As we imagine a perfect life to be. And the wisdom in that is that we can relate to his life. We can identify with him. Those things which do not detract from the lofty position of a prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed those things to happen and to occur in his life. Bereavement, difficulty in marriage, divorce, all of these things are, they may not be perfect and the best, but they don't detract from the position of prophethood. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed these things to occur in his life, so that we may identify with them, we may take a lesson from them. Those things which are not befitting the position of a prophet, Sallallahu wasallam. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala allowed those things to happen and to occur in the lives of people around the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi again, so that we can identify with them. Did the Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, sin? Even after becoming Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, some of them did. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used their sinning as an example of a momentary lapse of human nature. And then immediately thereafter, Allah used their realization, their refraining from further sin and their most sincere tawbah and repentance again as a supreme example for the ummah to follow. And their tawbah, their repentance was such, that as the messenger وسلم, mentioned about one woman, that her she repented such a repentance to Allah, that if her repentance was to be distributed amongst the people of Medina, it would suffice all of them. So, the Sahaba, radiyaAllahu anhum, At times, Allah manifested through them and in their lives, in their conduct, in their speech, in their behavior, things which are not perfect, but Allah used them as an example, so that we may relate to them, we may identify with them, and we can learn from them. Because remember, they were human beings. If we look at it this way, that we regard them as being perfect, then we see all these imperfections. Our view of them will be diminished. We may lose respect. But if we regard them as normal human beings, very normal, with the same weaknesses, with the same lapses, with the same challenges and difficulties as any normal human being faces, and then we regard them how they were with all their achievements, with their greatness, then our view of them will not be diminished, in fact, it'll be enhanced. And that's how we should view the Sahaba Now on this occasion, Abu Bakr and Umar despite being senior in age, and in position, and in knowledge, it so happened that they both suffered a momentary lapse. As a result of which, they became oblivious to the presence of the Messenger, and they both engaged in heated arguments, and in raised voices. It was a lapse, undoubtedly. It was an error on their part. And they recognized it as an error. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed this to happen. Again, to show many things. One of them is this, that ultimately, we have to continue working on ourselves. And we will always fall, we will always stumble. We will. There is no concept of perfection. We will make mistakes. We will always make mistakes. Minor, major. That's human nature. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar despite their position, authority and knowledge, they suffered a lapse and they made a mistake. That was their human nature. The other point is they both argue. Again, disagreements, conflicts, differing with one another. This is part of human nature. Islam recognises human nature. It knows human fitrah. And Islam has never sought to eradicate human nature. But what we have been taught is how to manage, overcome our weaknesses, and manage our human nature. So when it comes to disagreement, we will disagree. We have to accept disagreement as a fact of life, as a fact of human nature. I say this because hopefully this will answer many questions. We have a very ide- idealistic, perfect view, utopian view of Unity of oneness. Unity is not about unity of mind. That's impossible. Nor is it about unity of hearts. It's about avoiding as much conflict as possible and where disagreements arise, managing them. Managing them in the best way. We will disagree with one another. Parents disagree, siblings disagree, children disagree with their parents, and vice versa. Then is it any surprise that scholars disagree, ulema disagree, people of knowledge disagree? And it's not just about religious issues. People disagree on very personal things. Sometimes we just don't hit it off with another person. Their behavior is annoying, irritating. That's how they are. I often console myself by, well, not not necessarily console, but I just calm myself at times when I face provocative, irritating behaviour, that that's how this person's brain is. I was listening to a program today, actually, and it was about reality. What is reality? And there were psychologists and neurologists contributing to the discussion, and one of the things which was repeatedly mentioned is that people's realities differ. So the external reality as it is, is what it is. But how we read that, how we receive that, how we interpret that, differs from person to person. So some people, they can't help it. They actually see things totally differently to the way you and I see things. No wonder they become so passionate and angry and agitated if we don't agree with them. So people are hardwired. You and I. We, we can't change years and years of nature and nurture. We can't change anybody else. The most we can do, and even that is a very difficult task, is try to change ourselves. So, disagreements are a fact. We have to accept them. Conflict is a fact. We have to accept it. And not just disagreement about theological, religious Scholarly issues, but even in personality, even in character, even in likes and dislikes. Sometimes, like here, Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Umar, anhuma, one proposed a certain individual to be the leader of the delegation. Abu Bakr. Umar suggested someone else. Now, Abu Bakr didn't say to him that. I strongly disagree with you because of this reason and that reason this reason and that reason no that would have been a constructive discussion but rather Abu Bakr simply reacted by saying the only reason you suggested someone else is to oppose me and Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu he reacted And he said, No, I never. And both of them remained insistent on their claim, and they both ended up arguing and raising their voices in the presence of the Messenger. So this wasn't religious, this wasn't theological, this wasn't evidence based, it wasn't a constructive discussion of any sort. Both Shaykhain, the elders of the Ummah, Who was elder? Who was more senior? Who was more knowledgeable, more authoritative? These were the two lieutenants of the Prophet ﷺ, the two greatest men in the ummah after him. And yet, despite their age, their seniority, their knowledge, their position, their location, they suffered that lapse. And Their human nature got the better of them. It could happen to anyone. That's one of the lessons. But the greater lesson is what followed. As soon as they were warned, as soon as they were reminded, as soon as they came to realize both Abu Bakr and Umar repented, And not only repented but reformed themselves, and their reformation was absolute. So much so that Abu Bakr said to the Prophet or Messenger of Allah, Till the day I die, I swear by Allah, I will never speak to you again except as someone who whispers a secret to another. And he abided by that. And Umar, عنه, despite a, having a loud, booming voice, Abdullah ibn Zubair, when relates that after that, after this incident, Umar عنه, would speak so softly to the Prophet وسلم, that the Messenger وسلم, had to repeatedly ask him what he said. So, this is one of the meanings of lil-taqwa. Allah has tested their hearts for taqwa. So Allah did test them. Allah did put them through a trial. That was the test and trial of the Shaykhayn, the two elders, Abu Bakr and Umar But Allah put them through that test, for that was a test for them. Allah put them through that test, Allah... Rinse them, Allah cleansed them, Allah reformed them, Allah purified their hearts in the process. And from that moment onwards, their behavior, before the Messenger وسلم, as it always had been, except for that momentary lapse, their behavior was impeccable, as it was before. But the Sahaba were people who behaved in front of the messenger, sallallahu They always did. This was a momentary lapse on the part of the Shaykh, And on this occasion, there's a very beautiful story of Thabit ibn Qays ibn Shammas, radiyallahu an. He's the same one I spoke about earlier. He had a loud, booming voice. He was an orator. He was regarded as the orator of the Ansar. He was from the Khazraj tribe. So when this delegation came, the Prophet ﷺ appointed Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas to address them and to deliver a speech, and he did. He, he, he was a natural orator, but he also had a very loud voice. Now th- these were the sahaba, radhiyallahu anhum. After that delegation's visit, when Allah azza revealed these verses, that, O oh, believers, do not raise your voices. Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas, the same sahabi, anh, he became so fearful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to him, that it's related, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam found him missing. Thabit ibn Qais, radiyallahu an was nowhere to be seen. Imam Bukhari, and both Imam Muslim, both, Relate this hadith. That Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas was nowhere to be seen. So the Prophet sallallahu inquired, where is Thabit? So one of the sahaba radiyallahu anhum said, Ya Rasulullah, I will go and find out. So he went to his house. There he was given permission to enter. And he found Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas seated in the privacy of his home, head bent, weeping. So the Sahabi radiyallahu an said to him, "What's wrong with you? The Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم is looking for you. He is missing you, and he's searching for you. And what makes you weep?" So Thabit radiyallahu an said, "That Allah سبحانه وتعالى has just revealed the verses: Ya ayuhalladina amanu la tarfagu aswatukum فوق صوت النبي." That, O believers, do not raise your voices over the voice of the messenger. And do not speak to him loudly as you speak loudly to one another. Lest your deeds perish and you do not even realize. So he said, I am a loud-voiced person. I have a loud voice. I fear that Allah is referring to me. That Allah is speaking of me. That I am the one who has raised his voice over the voice of the messenger, and who speaks loudly to him, and I fear that my deeds will perish. So he, he continued weeping. The Sahabi عنه, went back to the Prophet وسلم, and told him of the conversation. The Prophet wasallam said to him, Go back and tell Thabit that I give you the glad tidings, that you are not one of these people, rather you are one of the men of Jannah. So, Anas ibn Malik anh, relates in another hadith that he, the words of Anas ibn Malik anh, are that Thabit ibn Qays would walk amongst us whilst we knew that he is one of the men of Jannah. This is how the Sahaba anh, were. They feared, they feared the revelation of the Quran. And when the Quran spoke, just as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud عنه, says, Whenever Allah says, O oh, believers, you be the one who is being addressed, think that Allah is speaking to you. That's exactly what Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas did. He felt that Allah is speaking about me. Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas, and even Abu Bakr ibn Umar, عنهما, after this incident and prior to this, they maintain that impeccable adab, an ihtiram an ikram, that etiquette, those manners, that politeness, before that respect before the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So how about Rudiallahu were renowned for that? Urut ibn Musrudfi Radiallahu hadn't yet embraced Islam when he went. on behalf of the Quraysh to visit the Messenger Sallallahu when he was come to Hudaybiyah, Urwut ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu saw the behavior of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum towards the Messenger Sallallahu and he came and reported it to the Quraysh. And he said, O oh Quraysh, I have visited the royal courts of Khosra of Caesar, and he mentioned other royal courts. But never have I seen a people revere their leader as I have seen the companions of Muhammad that revere him. When he speaks, they fall silent. When he does wudu, they jostle with each other to catch the droplets falling from his limbs when he performs the ablution. When he spits, they catch their, his spit in order to anoint their faces with it. We covered all of this in the hadith of Hudaybiyah in great detail. So this was in the sixth year of Hijrah, three years before the revelation of these verses. So the Sahaba, عنهم, their behavior before the Messenger وسلم, was impeccable. Even Amr ibn al-As, radiallahu an he was one of the leaders of the Quraysh, someone who opposed the Messenger وسلم, all the way up to the 7th, 8th year of Hijrah. And yet, Amr ibn al-'As (radiyallahu anhu himself says that there was no one greater in my eyes than the Messenger sallallahu And he filled me with awe. And this is Amr ibn al someone who opposed him until a very late stage. What he was one of the chieftains of the Quraysh who opposed him. So, Amr ibn Aas says, there was no one greater than the Messenger sallallahu in my eyes. He filled me with awe. And then he goes on to say that if you were to ask me to describe him, I would not be able to describe him to you because I would never look at him fully in the face. And that was Amr ibn Aas. So the Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, their respect, their ikram, their ehtiram, their adab, their etiquettes, their behavior, their discipline before the Messenger وسلم, was unique, it was indescribable, impeccable. And one of the qualities was this, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَغُدُّونَ أَصْوَاتَهُمْ الله. That indeed those who lower their voices before the Messenger of Allah. These are the ones whose hearts Allah has tested for taqwa. For them is forgiveness and an immense reward. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, contrasting the behavior of the believers, now speaks about those Bedouin who came in a delegation and approached the Messenger sallallahu as they did, shouting out to him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُنَادُونَكَ مِنْ وَرَاءِ الْحُجَرَاتِ أَكْثَرُهُمْ Indeed, those who call out to you from behind the chambers, that's what they did. The delegation of over 70 people came, entered the masjid, faced the homes of the messenger sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the hujarat, the noble chambers, and shouted out, "O oh, Muhammad, come out to us, come out to us. We wish to speak to you. And he was resting. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed, those who call out to you from behind the chambers. أَكْثَرُهُمْ <laughs> لَا Most of them have no sense. They do not understand. <clears throat> now, as I said earlier on, for those Bedouin, their approach was not extraordinary. It wasn't out of the ordinary. That was their standard behavior. But Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala says they have no sense, meaning no understanding of how to behave how to speak in the presence of a messenger of Allah. And remember, most of them had not embraced Islam, only a few of them, and as I said, according to some narrations, only two of them were Muslim, not the others. Later, they did embrace. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rebuked them, and not only did he rebuke them, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this sort of rash, brash, disrespectful, insolent behavior, in the presence of the messenger of Allah, is a lack of foolishness, is a lack of knowledge, is a reflection of ignorance. And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala simply says, "Aktharuhum la ya'qiloon, Most of them do not have any sense. They do not understand, they have no sense. And had they waited patiently, had they been patient, until you came out to them, اللهم, this would have been far better for them. Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. Meaning, the, their approach to the Messenger of Allah, what should it have been? Rather than shouting out to you to come out at their convenience, They should have waited patiently until you had rested and until you came out to them. They needed you, so they should have waited patiently. And then had they waited patiently until you came out to them, then this would have been far better for them. And Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. Again, Allah is teaching us adab and etiquettes. Allah teaching is teaching his manners, discipline, and the ummah has taken this discipline from Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now allow me to expand on this. All of this is connected. Why do we respect the Messenger sallallahu It's because of who he is and what he represents, what he brought. He was a messenger of Allah. He represented Allah. He was a carrier of the kalam of Allah, the speech of Allah. For all this and for much, much more, we respect him. We revere him. Revering the Prophet wasallam is an obligation upon the believers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna wa wa billahi wa rasulihi wa wa Allah says, addressing the Prophet indeed we have sent you as a witness, shahida, wa as a bearer of glad tidings, wa nathira, and as a warner. Why? لتؤمنوا, so that you, collectively, all of you, so that you may believe in him. Sorry, you may believe in Allah, and you may believe in his messenger. And وطعزروه, so that you may support him, i.e., support the Prophet. Watu and so that you may revere him. Tawqir means giving him wakar. Wakar means awe, composure, self-dignity. So we give him that respect. We don't just like him. We don't just love him. We love him, we respect him, we revere him. Reverence is an obligation upon the believers by the command of Allah in the Qur'an. And that means we don't just respect him, we respect his message, we respect his words. And this is what the ulama have always done. Ilm, ilm, knowledge. Is ultimately what comes from Allah and what comes from His Rasul sallallahu wasallam, and this is why we respect. In respect, has always been part of Islam. Discipline has always been part of Islam. Unfortunately, it's one of those things which is rapidly disappearing. And we see respect as civility. It's not civility. Respect is an integral part of religion. And inshallah, I will speak about this in more detail on another occasion. But today, I'd like to share a few thoughts specifically about respect for ilm, respect for ulama, because they are the people of ilm, they are the carriers of ilm. And how this has come down from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So forget the respect of ulama today. Going back to the time of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa immediately after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa how did the tabi'een, the successes to the sahaba radiyallahu anhum, how did they behave? And how did the students of the tabi'in behave when it came to the words of Allah when it came to the words of his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam when it came to the people who carried this ilm let me share a few accounts with you as i said last week when Allah says in the beginning verses, O believers, do not raise your voices over the voice of the Messenger wasallam," the ulama have always believed that this includes not raising our voices over the speech of the Messenger wasallam, even after he has departed from this world. That means the hadith. We respect the hadith. For that is the speech of the Messenger of Allah. And I shared a few thoughts with you about Imam Malik. Imam Malik was one of, the, one of the scholars of Medina. One of the tabu' One of the successors to the successors of the Sahaba. Anhum. He had never met any of the Sahaba. But most of his teachers were all students of the Sahaba. Anhum. Imam Malik, Imam Malik ibn Anas. As I said, he was a man of waqar, great composure. He would never laugh, never. Never. And it was rare that he ever laughed. There was one occasion when he did laugh, loudly, which is reported. And it said that... um, He was approached by someone who said to him that we have come across a people who take the name of Allah, i.e. they do the dhikr of Allah, but they dance whilst doing it. So Imam Malik, rahimahullah, actually laughed and he said, Are they mad? Now we may not understand the words of these ulama. Like I said earlier on, it's almost like our perception of reality is different to theirs. Wallahi, they were in another realm, Almost. Imam Malik says, as I said, when he would teach hadith, he would burn bahu. He'd bathe, he'd dress in the best clothes. He'd come, he'd sit down, and his students would be seated around him. He would rarely read hadith himself. He would listen whilst the students read hadith in front of him. In fact, some of the scholars say that Imam Malik, he was very frugal in his speech. He wouldn't say much. The most he would say is na'am or la, yes or no. People would ask him questions, he'd say yes, no. A man of great composure. And when he spoke about the Prophet wasallam, whenever he mentioned the name of the Messenger wasallam, it said about Imam Malik, الله, that he would lower his head and a change would come over him. Every time he mentioned the name of the Prophet wasallam. <laughs> So his students would say to him that they would feel that this is too much. They would feel sorry for him. So they would say that his color would change. So they would say that, oh Imam, why why are you so affected when you mention the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? So Imam Malik says, are you surprised by the effect on me? He said, when we used to visit our teacher, Imam Muhammad ibn al-Munkadir, Tabi'i, one of the successors to the Sahaba, anhim, he says, whenever we would visit our teacher, Imam Muhammad ibn al-Munkadir, and whenever he would mention the name of the Prophet, وسلم, immediately he would begin weeping, merely upon the mention of his name, and he wouldn't stop until we would feel pity for him. In fact, one of the family of the Prophet ﷺ, he mentions another tabi'i, Imam Ja'far as-Sadiq, one of the family of the Prophet ﷺ. Imam Malik says that he was, he had a lot of humor in him. He was a very humorous person. Imam Ja'far as-Sadiq. So he was very humorous and people are like that some of the sahaba radiyallahu anhum were humorous one of them the Sahabi he used to joke with the prophet sallallahu in fact more than one there was one of them he used to make the prophet sallallahu laugh and the sahaba عنهم, nicknamed him himar as a result donkey so imam bukhari rahimatullah relates this from umar so he would make the Prophet وسلم, laugh. There were others who were very humorous; they were full of da'aba and dharafa, as they say in Arabic, full of humor. So Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq he was very humorous as well. But Imam Malik says, despite his humor, whenever the name of the Messenger وسلم, was mentioned. The same humorous Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, he would turn green and pale, out of respect. At the mere mention of the name of Rasulullah alayhi salatu And there were so many of the ulama like that. Imam Malik mentions not one, not two, but so many of his teachers who would be overcome by change at the mere mention of the name of the messenger, sallallahu They would weep. So he used to tell his students that, do you marvel at me? What would you say about Imam Muhammad ibn al munkadir But the respect they had. Imam Malik also says about the same Imam Muhammad ibn al munkadir that whenever I felt the hardness of my heart, whenever I felt that my heart was becoming hard, I would go to visit my teacher, Imam Muhammad ibn Mulkadir. And just by seeing him and remaining in his company for a few short moments, I would come away with lessons for many, many days. That's how they would address the hardness of their hearts, by adopting the company of their teachers and their mashaykh. Why? Because they were colored in the colour of the Messenger. Sallallahu they, they saw them as being the bearers of the prophetic knowledge, as being the carriers and the treasurers of the prophetic knowledge. They saw them as successors to the prophets. That's why they respected them. And it wasn't just the tabi'in; it was the ones who came before them, the sahaba radhiyallahu anhum amongst themselves. This. Verse, what did Allah say? Had they remained patient until you came out to them, this would have been far better for them. This is how the Sahaba عنهم, were with the Prophet, وسلم, and after his time, this is how the Sahaba were with regards to knowledge of the Prophet. Abdullah ibn Abbas, وسلم, the cousin brother of the Messenger, وسلم, who who eventually became a great scholar in his own right, Abdullah ibn Abbas, as a young child, when he, after the Prophet was passing away, when he began his journey of knowledge, he says that I would visit the homes of the Sahaba in order to listen to hadith in order to hear hadith from them. But I would go to visit them. And remarkably, Prophet was. What was the time of the day when the Bedouin came? Afternoon, he was taking a siesta. So Abdullah ibn Abbas says that I would go to meet some of the Sahaba and I would find out that they were resting in the afternoon taking the siesta. So in the heat of Arabia, he says, I would lie down in the dust on the ground outside their doors, with the wind blowing dust all around me. And I would wait there until they woke up and until they came out. Then when they would see me, the same other sahaba would say to him, that, oh, cousin brother of the messenger of Allah, why didn't you inform us we would have come to you? And he would say to them, no, I have come to you to learn. I am the one who wants to learn, therefore I have come to you, and it was only befitting that I waited for you until you came out to me. In the sunnah of the ayah, that's what the verse says, حتَّى لَكَانَ لَهُمْ had they, be, had they been patient, until you came out to them, this would have been far better for them. Abdullah ibn Abbas, whom I've mentioned this before, Sayyidina Zaid ibn Thabit, one of the most intelligent of the Sahaba Zayd ibn Thabit led Salatul Janazah of someone, and then after the Janazah, uh, a mule was presented for him to ride away on. So Zayd ibn Thabit climbed the mule, and of all the people to rush forward to serve him, It was none other than Abdullah ibn Abbas. Abdullah ibn Abbas rushed forward, and he grabbed the foot of Zayd ibn Thabit with one hand, and the stirrup with the other, and he began inserting the foot of Zayd ibn Thabit into the stirrup. Zayd ibn Thabit said, O cousin brother of the Messenger of Allah, desist! Away with you, why are you doing this? So Abdullah ibn Abbas عنهما, words were, This is how we have been commanded to respect our ulama. So Zayd ibn Thabita dismounted, grabbed the hand of Abdullah ibn Abbas عنهما, and kissed it, and said, and this is how we have been commanded to honor the family of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi Wasallam the ulama, and these were the Sahaba If we regard respect as civility, is this civility? This is how Zayd ibn an and Abdullah ibn Abbas عنهم, behave towards each other. And only because of ilm. And why ilm? Not because of a degree or a qualification. Because of what they carried. They weren't respecting them so much as they were <laughs> respecting the knowledge of Rasulullah. That's how the Sahaba عنهم, were, that's how their students were. And that's how their students' students were, all the way until today. This is how the ulama have always behaved. They've learned not only ilm but also adab. In fact, you may have heard of the name of Imam Abdullah ibn Wahab, a very famous scholar of Medina. Imam Abdullah ibn Wahab. This same Imam Abdullah ibn Wahab was one of the most famous students of Imam Malik. And do you know what his words were? He said, we learned more adab from Imam Malik than than we did ilm. We learned more adab respect and discipline from Imam Malik than we actually learnt in. Truly. Adab, respect, was always part and parcel of our religion. Always. And it wasn't just, this is how the ulama would behave. There's a brilliant story about Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi rahimahullah. How the ulama respected one of them. In fact, he came later. So let me mention one or two accounts of earlier scholars. Speaking of hadith. How would ulama (coughs) treat hadith? Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah. One of the most famous imams of fiqh, of sunnah, of hadith, of ilm. He died in 241 Hijri after the hijrah, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he was once ill, and since he was ill, he was reclining against the wall, and he was gathered with a few people. Someone began speaking about Ibrahim ibn Adham, Ibrahim ibn Adham, was a scholar and a saint. He was widely regarded as being a very saintly person. So Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, as soon as he heard the name of Ibrahim ibn Adham, now Ibrahim ibn Adham wasn't a sahabi, he was one of those who came later. Yet Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was ill and he was leaning against the wall. When he heard the name of Ibrahim ibn Adham, he sat up. This was Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and he said, it is not befitting us that we recline and sit in such a manner when the names of the pious are mentioned. And he said that not for a verse of the Qur'an, not for a hadith, but only at the mention of the name of a pious person, Allahu Akbar. And that was Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Some of these names may be unfamiliar to you, but you may have heard of Imam Yahya al Qattan. Imam Yahya al-Qattan, rahimahullah, was one of the most famous scholars of hadith. And before I mention him, of course, you've heard of Imam Yahya ibn Ma'een. Everyone's heard of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. He died in 241 Hijri. These were his contemporaries. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal says of Imam Yahya ibn Ma'een that any hadith with Yahya ibn Ma'een doesn't know is not a hadith. That's how well he respected him for his knowledge. Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in. And Imam Ali ibn al-Madini was another contemporary of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Imam Ali ibn al-Madini. Who was Ali ibn al-Madini? Imam Bukhari says: Mustasgharto nafsi in illa Ali ibn al-Madini. Warubama kuntu ughribo عليه al-Hadith. He says that Imam Mukhari was very confident, but there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. He was very confident and self-assured. As a result of which he never regarded it, he was respectful, he was very humble, but he never regarded himself as inferior in any way. And there was no self-loathing or self-doubt, so he was never self-doubting. Imam Bukhari, a man of that genius and position, he says, I never regarded myself as small in front of anyone except Imam Ali ibn al-Madini. So imagine the position of Imam Ali ibn al-Madini. So Imam Yahya al-Qattan, he, one of the ulama says, that I would watch Imam Yahya. He would come to the masjid, he'd pray his Asr Salah, and after Asr Salah, he would sit leaning against a, a pillar. And then, who would come in front of him? Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Imam Ali ibn al-Madini, Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, and a whole group of other scholars of Hadith. And they would stand, They wouldn't sit, they would stand, and he'd recite hadith. And they would all stand and listen and sometimes write the hadith while standing. He would never say to them, sit down, and out of sheer respect and reverence for him, they would never sit down. And they'd stand all the way from Asr till Maghrib Salah. Can you imagine? (laughs) Ali ibn al-Madini, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Yahya ibn Ma'in. These giants of hadith standing all the way from Asr Salat al-Maghrib listening to hadith, never once daring to sit down out of sheer respect for Imam Yahya. That's how the ulama were. This is how they respected one another. This is why I say that we should observe etiquettes. In any gathering of ill. Only for the sake of the words of Allah and the words of His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And this is part of the meaning of do not raise your voices over the voice of the Messenger. And if If they had waited patiently until you came out to them, this would have been far better for them. There are many stories of respect and I mentioned about Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi. He came later, his teach, uh, well, uh, he came much later. He died in 321 Hijri. But Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah. Imam Abu Yusuf. Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah. Speaking of respect, listen to this. Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah, used to say, that I have never stretched my legs out towards the house of my teacher, Hammad ibn Abi Suleiman, even though there were seven streets between my house and his house. This is the adab and the ihtiram that we've always had. Now some people say, oh, this is, this is medieval, this is old, subhanAllah. Why deny the carriers and the bearers of the ilm of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa respect. Why deny the Qur'an and hadith respect when we see respect and discipline being forced on everyone else? For everyone else? It's actually imposed, it's orchestrated. And there is a tradition of discipline and respect in most areas. Martial arts. I once read a leaflet which invited people to come to uh, martial arts, well, to come to a dojo for martial arts lessons. And they had to pay as well, obviously. But there were all these prerequisites and conditions. That you must respect the master, the seafood, you must do this, you must do that, you must do this, you must do that. And I said, SubhanAllah. See, even in the tradition of martial arts, there's discipline, there's respect. It's actually enforced. No one sees that as civility. We have discipline and respect and dress codes, in classrooms, in uh, workplaces, in other areas. Islam has its own tradition of respect, of adab, of ihtiram And it's not just for ulama. What about respect for elders? What about respect for parents? What about respect for seniors? It's all fast disappearing. It's a bad time to be a parent. And it's a brilliant time to be a child. But the children will learn. Maybe their children will be worse. Islam has taught us adab and ahtarab in every field. Even respecting animals. But that's another topic. As far as this is concerned, the ulama had immense respect for one another. They had respect for knowledge. They had respect for it. I'll end with this, inshallah. I'll continue with the remaining verses of Surah Al-Hujarat from next week. And just to recap, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O believers, do not advance, do not place yourselves before Allah and his Messenger, sallallahu And be wary of Allah. Indeed, Allah is all hearing, all knowing. O believers, do not raise your voices over the voice of the Messenger. And do not speak loudly to him in the manner of speaking loudly to one another, lest your deeds perish and you don't even realize. Indeed, those who lower their voices before the messenger of Allah, these are the ones whose hearts Allah has tested for taqwa. For them is forgiveness and an immense reward. Verily, those who call out to you from behind the chambers, most of them do not understand. And had they remained patient until you came out to them, this would have been far better for them. And Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. And with this, was Allah who was sending Allah Muhammad, wa sahbihi